Hey guys, Josh here. Today I'm going to be sharing an episode once again of my other new podcast called My Old Hands. I'm not going to keep doing this, I promise. This is only the second time and it will be the last time I do this. But I was lucky enough to interview Joe Solsihai from the Stacking Benjamins podcast. And I don't want to keep you too long here because I'm going to reintroduce him again in a sec. But I figure as podcasters, there's something we can all learn from a guy that's created a show along with his co-hosts that averages somewhere around 35,000 downloads an episode. So not only will you learn about podcasting, you'll also get some tips on how to integrate comedy into your show from a writing perspective, if you choose to do that. And you'll also learn that Joe's an absolute ripper bloke, a dead set legend, I guess you could say. Righto, guys. Enjoy. Hey, this is Josh's friend Guy Miley and you're listening to Season 1 of My Old Hands. So I'm here with the host and creator of the Stacking Benjamins podcast, which we'll get onto in just a moment, and also the author of the new book, Stacked, Joe Selsihai. Welcome to My Old Hands. I'm super happy to be here. I'm, I love talking creativity. And yeah, thank you so much. It's really exciting to have you on. And I'm just going to dive straight into this because you're the man for this question. And it will become more evident to people what Stacking Benjamins and Stacked is about. But... Why are most money conversations so sterile? Banal. I would call them banal. And you are one oh. person that does the, the complete opposite way. <laughs> yeah, but well, it, it, it's because, and I don't know what this is, and I don't care what country you're in, what the currency is, what you know the system is. I feel like the people that have money, their barrier to entry is this second language that they've created that kind of keeps the money in the hands of the haves and makes it difficult for the have-nots. I really, it's funny because at first, if like if I was listening to your show right now and I would have just heard me say that when I started off with money, I would have said, okay, that person is the biggest fruitcake, they're the biggest moron <laughs> and, and conspiracy theorist. But, but I was a financial planner for 16 years. I worked for American Express for those years. For 12 of them, I was a PR person for American Express. The last, the last what, 12 years I've been in, in financial media. So 28 years between the two. I'll tell you, I more and more think that is the truth. And, and, and it's sad. And I also think that I think that it makes us feel cool when we know the language. So we talk, it's, it's like... When I first created Stacking Benjamins, I was listening to a U.S.-based show called Car Talk. And it's these two guys. They call themselves Click and Clack. They're these brothers. And what's wonderful about this show, Josh, is they don't use any jargon. They don't use any of the auto lingo. They have regular people call in. And when they tell them what's wrong with their car, they have the people make the noise. <laughs> they're, like, my, they're like, my car's going... Can you fix that? You know? yeah. and, it's, and it's fabulous. And what I realized was, was that these guys, by avoiding all of that, were making car culture available to more people instead of being, look at how cool I am because I know the car lingo, you know? Yeah, that's good. And just as a side note, I'm happy that sounds are not part of money because mine would just be the sound of dust hitting a bench. <laughs> so, that, that, that's awesome because- 
I think it's the exact reason why I instantly liked Stacking Benjamins more than probably any other financial entertainment product, which generally that's probably an insult to people that are making what you're making because <laughs> you're probably thinking of someone like Jim Cramer if you're out there, if you're in the US, particularly just screaming at you about something. But your show is fun. It is educational and obviously very steeped in real knowledge because multiple people on the show, including yourself, have a background. But when you were creating the show, did you have any fears or worries that uh, if we go a humorous, entertaining angle at all, are we going to discredit ourselves in some way, given that the industry generally talks about this at one level and it's generally boring? I think this is the important thing for any creator. Look at the space and know who's out there. You know, generally people don't do that, partly because they say they're afraid that they'll copy the other person, right? That they'll steal their stuff. There's a wonderful author named Austin Kleon, who I love. He's great. And Austin Kleon says, steal like an artist, and I love this. Pay homage to people. Remix it. Don't, don't plagiarize them. There's no fun in that. But it certainly is fun to tell people that the open of our shows, like The Tonight Show, the segments came from a board game podcast called The Dice Tower, the hidden track at the end of our show. We have 45 seconds of silence in this hidden track on every episode. That comes from an Xbox podcast. <laughs> uh, the idea of some of the storytelling we do comes from 99% Invisible. All of, these, all of these people that have affected me over the years really bleed into my show. So what I was afraid of... And this is a long way of getting to answering your question. What I was afraid of wasn't that people wouldn't take it seriously. It was the fact that I knew that out of 330 million people in the United States and the billions of people around the world, so many of us cry about their money and we're not reaching them. And there's so many wonderful creators out there that could be reaching them and we're not reaching enough. So when I designed the show, I actually went the other way, Josh. I was afraid of the fact that because OG and I, my co-host, because we're, quote, industry insiders, that would make people tune out. Because what I've found listening to these different financial shows is when people hear industry expert, they go, yeah, I hear that. What, what they really want, I think, are stories. And the stories they want is about, are about how we mess stuff up and we live through it. We made it through, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that was, that was the key. So we went more comedy on purpose because of exactly what you're talking about. I was far more fearful of people go, oh, certified financial planner and a, and a former financial planner, I'm out. Don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> that, that's awesome. And there's probably people out there now thinking, Josh, it's a pretty weird topic to introduce so early in a show, in the first few episodes of a new show, the topic of money and creativity. And I'll get to why specifically Joe's on the show for me in a sec, but that answer is great. You went hard on the comedy. And there's probably also people out there thinking, oh, you say comedy, Josh, but there are a couple of financial planners. Is that just self-congratulatory <laughs> bullshit? They surely can't be that funny. Your show is genuinely funny. <laughs> So and that's a collective <laughs> that's a collective effort. Obviously, it's not just the rapport you have now after eight, nine, ten, eleven years or however long the show's been going in total. But there's some really high quality writing in there. Was the writing part of the initial part of the show, or was it more just the human interaction between you and your co-host? Hey legends, super quick. If you're wondering where you can find any of the things that are mentioned in today's episode, head on over to myoldhands.com and you'll find it all there. 
Okay, let's jump back into the conversation. I'll tell you the genesis of it. So we had it, we really wanted to be approachable and fun and inclusive. And uh, that was the idea. But when we first started off with the show, it was still us talking like industry experts. And what we found was that the show was growing show was growing at a decent rate. It went from zero to about 3,000 people during the first two and a half years, which is a nice, nice, nice number of people. You know, most podcasts don't get that big. No, it's still a huge number even today yeah, with how much bigger yeah. the space is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was, it, it, it was doing okay, but it still didn't feel like with the mass market feel the show had it still felt like we were we were being held back. What I like doing is something that a lot of creators don't do. I like reading I like reading my reviews. I like going into the comments and reading those one-star reviews. And don't get me wrong, as you know, Josh, as well as anybody, that's so difficult mm. to do. But if you can take the stank, if you can take the negativity out of the review and you can kind of be objective about it, you can gain some great insights. And I'll give you an example. Well, there's two, there's, there's two reviews in particular. One review that we still get today, the negative review that we get. We don't get a lot of negative reviews, but when we do, it's, I wish these guys would stop playing around. And I know from my time doing this that that's a money nerd that just wants us to be like every other serious show. And the answer is no, thank you. It's, you can leave that review all day and I'm not going to do that. That is that is a core piece of our mission is to bring in new people and new people don't want what the money nerd wants. So you're not my audience and it's okay that you don't like us messing around. But the one that the one that really got me early on was this. These guys aren't as funny as they think they are. That oh. was that was the review. And you know what? At first I was like, screw you, we're funny. And then I thought I'd been a financial planner for 16 years my co-host, working CFP, knows what he's talking about. When I see somebody else that has a brand new finance podcast and they just began, I'm like, oh, how cute. You know absolutely nothing about the industry. You have no depth of knowledge. And, you're and don't get me wrong. I think that can be a fine show. Like I love shows where people are discovering money and we'll have those people on. But somebody's presenting themselves as an expert and they've been around for four years is BS. It's baloney. <laughs> yeah. And yet we were presenting ourselves as comedy and we'd never once studied comedy. We'd never once done any comedy courses. We'd never done any comedy. Like how uh, there are people out there busting their butt on the comedy circuit every day. And we're calling ourselves a show that has a lot of comedy and we've never once studied it. And you know, that was a great review. So what they wanted us to do by leaving at that review is they want us to stop screwing around. And instead we did the opposite. We began taking those comedy courses and now we always have a slate of comedy that we're studying all the time. I just got done right now because of COVID. I've been on a masterclass kick, the online masterclass courses. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Steve Martin, Martin was a great one that we that we just finished. Uh, we just finished Judd Apatow, uh, who's who's been behind so many comedic movies, and talking about setups and good comedy and what to what to look at for comedy. We're getting ready to do another uh, another live course again. But the comedy thing, the comedy thing was was something we had to get our head around. And once we started doing that, we actually found that people liked the show more. Mm. And the show grew, grew even quicker. So we actually, we made the show more accessible. 
we stopped talking in big language as much as we as much as possible. We made the show snappier and funnier, and we really honed the humor. A year ago, though, the show got even funnier, and it was because now that the show's grown to about thirty five thousand people an episode, listen, wow. we can afford to hire this woman who's a wonderful writer who writes for us. Her name's Paulette Perhatch. And she has written stuff for the New York Times, for Vox, for a bunch of big publications. I don't know why the hell she decided, Josh, to work with us. <laughs> I will tell you this. I got very lucky because she does not get paid by us what she gets paid by other places. And this, this I guess, is a good th- – make yourself really easy to work with and fun to work with. Because when I asked Paulette, I said, you know, I know the answer is probably no, but I would love to work with you. And she wrote back and said, I'd love to work with you too. And I think this would be a lot of fun. And now we're trying to pay her more and more is, you know, to keep her here. We've kept her for a year. I have no idea how, but man, the second I can give her more money, I want to do it (laughs) because Paulette's writing makes us even seem funnier. She is so crisp and sometimes the double entendre dirty humor she has that just goes over kids' heads, you know, is phenomenal. Yeah, it's high level clean writing. (laughs) <laughs> and that's a very hard thing to do. Like I started off doing clean stand-up and realized, well, Australian people, the audiences I'm doing live comedy to, they tend to like it a bit bluer anyway. So that doesn't re- that the blue stuff works in the live environment. And clean writing any clean joke is very very hard. And so hard. So if someone was to go and listen to Stacking Benjamin, say straight after listening to this, where where would they hear Paulette's writing? Maybe through the episode. Yeah, the open the, specifically every episode you'll hear anything my uh, that we have a character on our show to make the show even more approachable called my mom's neighbor Doug, yeah. and and my mom's neighbor Doug nearly everything that comes out of his mouth is written by Paulette Perhatch. Wow, yeah, and they're some of the funniest bits. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so just, we just had we just had one that the, our audiences haven't heard. By the time this comes out, people will have heard it, but. We have one where uh, Doug has been on a spending binge and uh, my mom outfitted him with a shot collar. And now, and he agreed, of course, I mean, it was very consensual, but now every time he talks about spending money, she shocks him. So our wonderful editor, Steve Stewart, now got to put all these shock noises in and just being being live with Doug when he's he goes, yeah, it was on Amazon and I was thinking about buying... <laughs> and he's getting shocked. It's just, it is so dumb and so funny. Yeah. <laughs> you bring up something interesting, not to go too inside baseball, but Steve, I'm not sure how I heard about him and I've never heard his show back when he was making a show, but he's always been an incredible advocate for your show. I mean, I'm assuming even before he started producing for it, he's been talking about it for 10 years as far as I know. It's important maybe to like have those people in your world that go out and tell people about what you do. I feel so honored that we get to work with Steve. He's just, he's a wonderful human being. And to your point, yeah, every year on Dave Jackson's School of Podcasting, they ask, what's your favorite show? And he always says, my show. But you know what, though, Josh, is you, it's just every bit as much his show. He'll, he'll call it my show. And certainly I created it and set the mood. But the longer this thing goes on, the more it's Paulette and Doug and OG and and Steve and the rest of our team. That's it. So, Joe, is it okay if we have a slight change of direction? And I'm yeah, let's do I'm it. I'm going to try not to die over here since I haven't talked much this morning. <laughs> that's, that's good. That, but, so, but that would be huge. It would be huge ratings if you died on air. <laughs> <laughs> it would be. Yeah, it'd be one of those classic 
it takes off after your demise. Did you hear that podcast where the dude died <laughs> mid-question? Yeah, and his dying didn't sound any different to his accent. So, <laughs> so I wanted to ask a question, and this is hopefully not a convoluted esoteric question, but with your history in financial planning and dealing with all kinds of different people and through the show itself, I'm sure you hear from a lot of artists and creatives at different times. I found looking back, and I'm not psychoanalyzing myself, and Joe, I don't want you to psychoanalyze me, but I look around, particularly at my music accumulation of gear and amplifiers and guitars. I mean, I was a very good guitar player when I was at my best, but I was only an amateur when it came to career. I was a good amateur guitar player. I never got really paid to do it, never went on a tour, but I couldn't, even if I wanted to, because I'd saddled myself with all of this debt to accumulate these objects, artifacts is what they are now, of higher quality and expense than I would ever need at the time. And when I look at myself, I'm like, Josh, did you need all that stuff because you loved it? Or were you putting another block in your own way that you couldn't pursue that career even if you wanted to? Because I couldn't move overseas because I had all this debt from buying a guitar or an amp. And I couldn't go study audio engineering in Melbourne, one of our biggest cities, because I couldn't afford that and to pay off all of this stuff that I'd bought. I don't know if there's anything really in there, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot is that I look at these things, I'm like, oh, that stopped me from doing this. I wanted to be a musician, but I couldn't have went on tour even if a band asked me to, because I wouldn't have, yeah. I would have had to have admitted that I'm too in debt to go on tour with you. No, that's in, that's so many people. I mean, and it and it's getting worse all the time as wages around the globe have stagnated. Right? I mean, we're getting more and more productivity out of workers, and wages are not going up. And we need to be advocating for ourselves more. And I love the idea that uh, in mass people have had enough. And you know, here in the U.S., we've had what we call the Great Resignation. I think that's been around the world. Yeah. Where yeah. people are like, nope, no, I'm quitting this job and I'm finding a better one. But 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 I think that you bring up a good point. When we go into work for somebody else, we look at things very objectively, right? We, we go into work and we're like, oh, the boss wants XYZ, so I'm going to deliver XYZ. But when we work on our own personal financial stuff, we get all emotional about it. So many emotions come into play. And so when I was a financial planner, what I really liked was pulling back, you know, and and zooming out so that we're at the 10,000 foot level and really look at Josh's financial picture as if you are a business. You're not a person, you're a business. And if I were an investor, what would you need to change for me to invest in your business? And I'll tell you what number one is. Number one is preserving your cash flow, having enough cash flow coming in, free cash flow that you can use however you want, that you have the ability to do those things that you want. Because like when I was, when I, and I was a money disaster in the <laughs> 1990s, I was horrible with money. And the one thing that I remember thinking was, I really knew, I knew that the key to success was being able to think long term. Josh, I couldn't think long term because I need to figure out how to eat the next day because my cash flow was so bad that I just needed to pay the bills. And so I had to take on these stupid jobs and do stupid things that were not as smart as what I could be doing because of the fact that I need something paid right now so mm. that I could actually live tomorrow. So your first job is to get out of that mode 
to stop living paycheck to paycheck. And certainly that means a few things. It means hiding money from yourself. It means putting money into an emergency fund. And it means cleaning up the debt so that you have this free cash flow available that buys that flexibility. Those are all great. And that's something that took me, even though I, was a, I had a finance degree, I didn't learn anything about how to take care of my own finance. The- that's so funny. <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm a creative writing major who became a financial player. Well, that paid off now, so many years <laughs> later. So there's probably a little bit of terminology in there that people might have heard before, Joe, and there may be some that they haven't said quite that way at a human level, a non-technical level. So for someone that's out there thinking, oh, that sounds cool, I kind of get what he means, some of that stuff, can we just go through those three things and maybe put them in the mind of, let's envisage someone like a younger version of myself that was trapped under mountains of I've got 10 guitars and I only need one that got financed mostly with debt at different times and I want to go study audio engineering. How can we wrap wrap those three things up with that person in mind? Yeah, let's do the first one, the free cash flow idea. So what that means is the amount of money coming in is higher and the amount going out is lower than the amount coming in. So there's this money that I have that's in the middle that I can use to get ahead. I can use it for savings. I can use it for spending. But it's it's what we call free cash flow when we look at, at businesses, meaning I have the freedom to do whatever I need to do. And if that's put extra money toward that debt or if it's to put in an emergency fund or if it's to spend because I want to go on tour, then I can then I can do that. So the big lie, let me tell you the big lie. The big lie that I lived was that I can I can earn my way out of really bad money habits. Uh, In other words, yeah. if I just earn my more money, it will solve my problem. That this is a huge lie. I'll tell you, when I was in financial trouble, I was making about eighty-five thousand dollars a year. I was making a respectable amount of money. I was spending a hundred thousand. But you know what, Josh, it didn't matter. If I had made a hundred thousand, I would have spent one twenty. If I made one twenty, I would have spent one forty. And there always would have been this thing because I was just crap with money. I was horrible. So no matter how much money I I earned, my bad money habits were going to kill me. So which means that we have to put these systems in place to watch our money. And by the way, there's three places we can look for cuts that are better than any others. Like everybody starts off with, you know, I'll clip some coupons. Maybe <laughs> I'll turn the lights off after I leave a room. Yeah. Like these little saving $5, $2, $3. Th- okay. Those aren't going to do anything. I'll tell you what moves the needle. Number one, where you live or who you live with. Do you have room for roommates or are you in an expensive place to to live? Is there a way to make that less expensive? Number two is your transportation cost. If you can drive, if you can drive an automobile that costs you less money or forego the automobile at all, then that will save you a huge amount of money. Third is, third is, is, is the grocery store. The amount of money that you spend on food <laughs> is going to be your third biggest expense. And, and I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. I have a family member. There was an unfortunate circumstance I won't get into, but I, I got to look at their personal financial picture. One of them, she had a car lease that was $1,100 a month, $1,100 a month. <laughs> well, my, holy my, moly. Yeah, the person the person she's married to has a car that's $1300 a month. They're always struggling with money. Let me tell you my spouse and I do not struggle with money, 
I drive the, the, the biggest dump car. It is, I think it's 12 years old. It's, it, it is, it is, it, I bought it for $5,000. It drives good enough. And then we have one car that we paid cash for as much as we possibly could. And then we financed a little bit of it only because the finan- financing cost was, was so, frankly, at the time we even had the money to cover that. But if I hadn't, I still would have made sure that I had enough money to put down that we, we are, our loan payments like $350. So I've got $350 of outflow a month. These other family members of mine, $1,400 of outflow a month, just on their vehicles, cut that cost. And holy man, if they had $350 a month, they had going out on vehicles, Josh, it would solve a lot of their money problems that they complain to me about all the time. Yeah. And when I think about our little imaginary young Josh thinking I might go study audio engineering. This is me in my mid late 20s even I was still struggling with money to a certain degree. I would probably just write myself a list. Okay, you you walked into the guitar shop and you thought I'm going to buy that thing I've never thought about once and never considered whether I need it. I'm going to write down how many actual purposes could this thing potentially have? And maybe there's a minimum threshold that you need to use it X number of times and it's this helpful at a gig or it's worth this much money to resell it if you don't need it. And if it doesn't pass that minimum criteria, then you just hold off and don't buy it at the time. But I don't want to put, you know, if if your main goal in life is to have this amazing guitar, yeah, I think I think you don't even play any of that game. You play the game around everything else that's not as important because the bad thing is People spend a lot of money on stuff that truly isn't important to them because they don't think about what they value. Right. So if you truly do value having this phenomenal guitar, that's fine. But then why are you buying? Why are you buying? Uh, I'm just trying to think of something a a vacuum for your home. Why are you buying the most expensive vacuum when you truly don't care? You know or buying something else that you really don't care about. I see people buy all this name brand stuff or stuff they don't care about. And then they wonder why they don't have any money. Um, <laughs> but I see other people that that buy very quality, great stuff in the areas they care about. And then they cut everything else mercilessly because they don't care. So I think it all starts off with not what do I cut? Because that means living less life. And I'm not the big fan of that. Yeah. I'm a fan of how do I get what I love uh, today and make sure I also have money for tomorrow. That's That's a lot more fun. Yeah, that's a good point. And I agree, actually, now you've put it like that. I probably was thinking about that slightly wrong, but I'm talking about the peripheral purchases Agreed. That, aren't, that aren't core. There's just one little thing in my head that, oh, if one day if I join a country band, which I don't even like the genre, I'm probably going <laughs> to need a single coil Strat again, even though I've owned three and sold them all because I never played them. I definitely need that one. <laughs> gotta have it. Gotta have it. <laughs> yeah, so- well, wait, well, And I'll tell you, that, the other cool thing to do there- if you know that that's your impetus, what I love doing is I love surrounding myself in the data. And when you find out how the dopamine hit works, right, you find out what a lie the dopamine hit is going to be from buying that. It actually helps me not buy it because I've had the same thing, you know, doing what you and I do. I, I feel very lucky that I get to then talk to these financial experts. I'm like, you know what? I'm really considering this really dumb purchase, but man, I want it. And then I find out that this whole idea that if I buy it, I'm going to feel great is just a lie. I'm not going to feel great. I'm going to feel even worse because yeah. I'm not going to play it 
It's not going to do anything good for me. I'm going to regret it. And it's going to end up making my life uh, no better. <laughs> exactly. So what was number two on our list? Yeah. Number one was cash flow. Number two was building an emergency fund. Yeah. So an emergency fund is this pot of money that you set aside so that when things go bad, you don't have to go back to the credit card. You don't have to, because the problem isn't a credit card. The problem is your behavior, right? Mm. So credit cards, if used responsibly, can be a great way to build credit. They can be a great way for big purchases. You could even play the rewards program, go on trips and things. But most people say they're going to do that, and then they get into really bad credit card debt. So the, the way to cure that is live an all-cash lifestyle, spend cash and not credit at first until you get used to respecting the value of a dollar. I had to go through this. And then putting money aside so that when life inevitably comes up, that you've got this, this well to draw from to get money. Here's the thing. Here's the reason why people don't do that. You look at your credit card debt in the United States. I don't know what it is in Australia, but in in in, in the United States, it's you know these twenty three, twenty four percent interest, right? These absolutely horrible interest rates on credit cards. And I used to have clients when I was a financial planner. It would say, Joe, you're talking about putting money in a savings account earning one percent, and I've got this credit card debt earning twenty, twenty one, twenty two. It sounds stupid. Here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to put every dollar toward the credit card debt and then I'll build my emergency fund. That sounds great, but let me tell you what happens. Two words happen, Josh, real life, which means (laughs) that unless you get this windfall and you can pay it off immediately, you know, your car breaks down, your dishwasher breaks, you get whatever these, whatever the problem of the day is like real life shows up and it takes money. And if I've put every dollar that I have toward paying off that credit card, guess what I have to do? I got to go right back to the credit card. Mm. And then I have to do this behavior again. And every time I use that plastic, my brain goes, oh, this is okay. See, it wasn't that bad. This is normal. I've had so many people tell me using their credit card all the time is normal. This is what normal people do. No, no, you got to make it so it's not normal. Yeah. Wow. And I guess- just to take that one step further, I, I remember a time in my life where two things, Joe. The idea of creating an emergency fund was in my head, oh, if I can't put $200 a week into this thing and it can't build up to a substantial amount to cover some imaginary emergency that I'd catastrophe that I built up in my head, what's the point? Like I'd, I had some threshold that I'm like, oh, if it's not growing at this rate, what's the point of even having it there? If it's only $50 a week, it'll be only... in three months or, you know, however the math would work on however much you're putting in there. But the other thing was that sometimes if you're buying things, I mean, it might be different if it's a dishwasher or a clothes dryer that you may need every, you know, every day, particularly in winter. But if you're buying a fourth guitar on credit and then you have an emergency, the only thing that you have that's worth money is that near new guitar. So then you sell it at essentially a loss, the debt's still sitting there. And you use that money, which is probably less than what it's worth and what you need to fix the emergency anyway. It's kind of a cycle where all you're left with is the debt and you don't have the instrument or yeah. the, or the computer or the new car or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's not about less. 
And I want to be clear here. You know, there's a great quote that I love that says, you can't shrink your way to greatness, right? You can't. <laughs> so it's it's not about cheapening your life and having less stuff. It's about having more. But you do got to get around those mental barriers of what do I need versus the, I have a friend that told me this recently. This is pretty funny that the three most dangerous words somebody says that doesn't have money, you know what they are? I deserve it. Oh, just, yeah. Right. Cause after a while you go, I, oh, I deserve this. I don't have the money, but I deserve it. Oh <laughs> man. Oh no, 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 no. I'm pretty sure that's the only phrase I can say in 300 different languages. <laughs> I was my whole 20s was pretty much that exact phrase in different ways. Oh, I can't tell you the number of times I'm a geek and I loved computer games and I would just I'd have absolutely no money and I'd see this new computer game and I'd go, "Oh no, I just I've been working so hard and this will just make it so I work." Yeah, I couldn't. There was oh, it was horrible. If I had that pile of money back, that'd be so wonderful. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking the other day that I, when I was up to guitar number 30 in my 20s and I was complaining that I hadn't been overseas as much as I wanted, every one of those guitars in Australian dollars was more than what a plane ticket would have cost me. So sometimes making irrational purchases doesn't just saddle you with potentially debt. Even if you pay cash for it, you might be giving up experience for an object. Right. Yeah, which is what I did a lot of. Now, that's funny. Thinking through the opportunity cost of a move, if I do X, that keeps me from Y. So what are the Y things that I'm not doing when I spend when I spend this money? Which is, by the way, I think a key to all of this, and this is not one of these three things, but it's core to the whole idea, Josh, is this. You know, have a weekly money meeting where you have some good self-talk around what you're going to do. And, and I like this. I don't want it to be long. I don't want it to be complicated. People go, weekly? Oh, I'll do this once a month. No, no, no. If you do this monthly or you do this quarterly, you're going to build it up to United Nations Summit and it's going to suck. You want, you want it to be frequent so it's always on your mind. Mm. So t- 20 minutes long. This is the way Cheryl and I do it. And by the way, it doesn't have to be with somebody. If you're single, just set aside the time for yourself to do this. For Cheryl and I, we want to keep it fun. So we have it over over wine if it's in the afternoon or pancakes if it's in the morning. Like, And if it's in midday, we get both, which is cool. Wine and pancakes. Sounds good. <laughs> Could be both. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so all we do is this. The meeting's really simple. We We look through what we spent money on the week before. And we make some notes about, ooh, I think we got mischarged on that. And I can't tell you, by the way, in the early years of doing that, how many times we found mistakes and they were never in our favor. Or we just ask questions. We're like, why was our heating bill so high? And then we find out that there was a problem with a meter one time. Another time we found out that with an energy audit, we could do much better. But when we started asking that question, we asked that question about our telephone bill, you know, about our internet stuff. We, we had direct TV for a while and canceled that because we realized we could go less expensive there. But it's this idea of looking at what we spent money. And then we would go through and we just think about what we're going to spend money on the next week. And it was okay. You know, if it was, I love board games now. If it, if it's a new board game, I'm going to go go spend $60 on. 
great, fantastic. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. But I know ahead of time, I have a little plan with my money and everybody geeks out about, do I use, what app do I use? What spreadsheet do I use? What program do I use? Those are all great. And I geek out about all those too. But more important than that is this self-talk communication once a week where I take 20 minutes and just look at what I did last week, look at what I'm going to do next week. And that's it. That's it. And for anyone out there that's thinking, and I started doing something similar, I look at my very basic spreadsheet because I could go full finance nerd and have breakdowns on everything, but I just have a simple picture of how I'm traveling. And the small view in one single 20-minute lot or 10-minute lot or however much you can commit to start with, it's just a picture. But over time, it maps your behavior you can see that you're trending in it for, for me for the first time in a positive direction, which gives me more energy to keep doing it because I can see over time how those numbers are growing. And the other thing is you mentioned earlier, earlier is put part some stuff just on automatic, almost like you don't know it's happening. Like I looked in my Vanguard yes. account the other day, which I used to buy Vanguard ETFs, not to get too nerdy about it, but I didn't realize I had so much actual cash sitting there ready to buy some more ETFs. I thought I was several hundred dollars below that because it's just been ticking away until I was ready to buy some more. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of pleasant. <laughs> I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't putting my numbers in my little sheet there. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> I I love every the unintended consequences that happen because of this little 20-minute thing yeah. that happens with, with frequency. Frequency, I think, is the key. The other thing that happens is this. You need to have these bigger conversations. And money nerds in the audience already know, Josh. They're like, ooh, we could talk for three hours about financial independence and how we do this and our strategies around our – yuck, gross. <laughs> And, and the reason it's yuck is that if you're trying to do this with anybody, you freak them out, you freak them out. They don't want anything to do with it. And next thing you know, you're, you're, you're wondering why nobody wants to talk to you about money or you get so in the weeds that you realize that you need to walk before you can run. But I'll tell you what happens. If you have this 20 minute meeting every week, those bigger conversations that yes, you need to have those end up happening organically. Like I found that Cheryl and I keep that 20 minutes very simple and then we're off on a hike during the weekend or we're, we're driving somewhere and we'll just bring up, hey, you know what? There's this big picture topic and it's organic and then it's fun and it's not me shoving it down my non-finance nerd spouse's throat you know, yeah. to talk about it. <laughs> That's awesome. So before we just talk quickly about the book, Joe, did we want to... Just cap off number three on our little list there, if we haven't yeah. done so yet. Yep. Yeah, number three is the one that you alluded to earlier. It is not discipline, it's automation. Automation is the key to success. If, if you trust yourself to be disciplined, you're going to continue to do the I deserve it routine. You're going to continue to rob yourself. You don't want to do that. So if you work for somebody else, use direct deposit to have that money go to the correct accounts. If you don't work for somebody else, set up a system by which money automatically goes from your wrong account, generally whatever your spending account is, into these savings areas. But don't trust yourself to do it. If you trust yourself to save this money, two things happen. Either number one is the money sits there too long and your brain finds a different reason for it, like a new guitar. Yeah. Or number two, when you get ready to move the money, you go, well, it's going to move $100, but you know what? What if something comes up? I'll move 50. Uh, maybe I'll move 35 for now. 
and I'll leave it there for a few days and then, you know, then I'll move more later. Later never comes. You end up robbing yourself. If you set up automatic and you're like every week or every month, $100 is going to move from this account to this account, your brain goes, oh, I got to make sure the $100 is there because the thing's going to happen. Like, you know, you you respect the machine. I don't know what it is about our head, mm. but we respect the machine we build. So build a machine that will automate things for you because you don't want to think about money. You no. want to think about what you love to do. And if money's automatically building wealth for you and security, like how great is that? If you know that I can be having this conversation with you and I'm not, you know, sitting looking at my financial app all day. That's exactly right. And just to cap that one off, I guess for me, I had to frame it in terms of I've never missed a rent payment. I've never been late paying my landlord. And that's an obligation that I have to a different person. Why would I not have that same obligation to myself? <sighs> it's always been X number and I've always had the, the rent money there. It's not even calculated into my financial picture. It's just that has to go before anything else. And then the very next thing now, which I treat exactly the same, is that money's going automatically to me because that's my obligation. Fabulous. Yeah. It's like a bill. It's a debt. It to is, yourself. but you, you wouldn't you wouldn't unless you're in really hard circumstances. I'm not saying that there aren't times in your life where even the rent check is a massive lift for a lot of people and you're like, Oh I won't say what I was going to say, but how the F am I gonna yeah. get that money together? Like I'm not there's obviously people in bad circumstances at different times, but on a standard fortnight or monthly basis, that money's always there and I just commit that that has to be, nothing touches that. So I've just moved a little bit of my own money into that same picture and it gets yeah. shuffled away and that's how you have moments where you realise, oh, I've got a few hundred dollars more in my little account thing there from the last couple of months than I realised. Because I wasn't, it was such a small amount, going back to what I was saying before, that past Josh would have been like, oh, that's not worth it. $50 or $100 a, month, a week or a fortnight can't become anything real. But when it becomes a couple of thousand dollars over 12 months, then it, it really feels real. And you're like, oh, this actually works. <laughs> well, no. Well, yeah. Think about this. So there is this, um, there's this thing that my cousin does that is super effective. I've been bragging about it for nearly a year and I've done nothing about it, by the way. So, so I'm guilty of this one. You're a typical creative. Does, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. 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 So I've done a lot of good stuff, but this is one I need to do that I have not done, which is, you know, it's funny. We, we I talked about cutting out direct TV, cutting out our cable, but, but by our satellite system. But now what do I have? Now I have the Hulu experience. I have Disney plus I have Apple TV I have Netflix and I have Amazon, right? I somehow have held back from HBO and Showtime. I have no idea how I had the discipline to not have those. But but so now I have these five streaming services. My cousin, his name's Randy. Randy writes me about once a quarter and he says, hey, what uh, in his text, what are you, what are you watching on Netflix that you really like? And I text him. And then about a quarter later, he's like, hey, what are you watching on Disney Plus that you really like? And what he told me that he does is he will only sign up for what you only have one set of eyes. So he will sign up for one service. He will go to all of his friends that he respects what they watch. He'll get this list of all the best things on Netflix that he wants to watch. He watches all of those. 
Then he cancels it. He signs up for Disney Plus, usually finding one of those three months free or a month free deals. Mm. And then he binges all the Disney Plus stuff. It's brilliant. Why have five of these when you could only, you know, watch one thing at a time? And you'll ultimately he gets the same stuff I get to. Man, it's great. But think about so between those services, I was thinking about this. He probably saves, to your point, sixty. $70 a month, mm. you know? Yep. So if we take if we take 60 times 12, that's $720 he saves a year. To your point as well, doesn't sound like a ton of money, Josh. But think about this. $700 a year times a decade, that's $7,000 in the United States. That is two pretty kick-ass vacations that I'm adding to my vacation schedule, to my holidays that I didn't have before. If I can add an extra two holidays to my usual vacation schedule that I didn't have before every 10 years, just because I did the thing with Netflix. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's, inc it's incredible. It adds yeah. up to these life experiences that we didn't have. That's amazing. And I did something similar, although on a smaller scale recently, I thought, okay, I really am getting sick of how many ads are in YouTube now. And they're just getting more and more. And it makes sense. I mean, they're a profit-making exercise and advertising is how they make their money. But I decided I would cancel something to be able to get premium YouTube. I wasn't going to just add it, which I normally yeah. would have just added it on there. Oh, that's an extra $20. It's still not as much as if I had Foxtel, which is our equivalent yeah. of a major cable provider. They were, for a long time, the only option. Yeah, so I canceled a $20 subscription or 15 and then I added a 20 but I figure that extra $5 in there for the amount of time that I make back in my life on a YouTube video is worth the extra five. <laughs> the difference doesn't bother me because when there's 10 minutes of ads now in an hour long, you know, YouTube video, that's worth it to me. I love that idea. One in, one out. You know, it's the same thing with things around our house. I've adopted that with my wardrobe as well. Yeah, people can't see us, but I'm in a Mickey Mouse t-shirt today. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I bring it strong, the wardrobe. <laughs> we, it looks like quite a we, soft t-shirt though, Joe, I will say. <laughs> it is. It is so com comfortable. The Whenever I bring in a new t-shirt or I bring in a new you know, pair of pants, whatever it is, one goes out. Because I find that stuff just accumulates around my house and stuff equals psychic energy. And if I can keep my my brain on this even keel where I can focus on creativity, it's hard to focus on creativity when I have clutter all over the place. Right. So you touched on something there that I wanted to finish up with, but can we just quickly talk about the book and then I'll throw my last question at you, which actually came to me in a direct message. So, Deal. Let's do it. Right. So- Two questions or two-parter. I'm asking this as though someone that's had no contact with it, a listener, for example. Does the book have the same humorous thread, given the subtitle of the book maybe makes it sound like it's a very serious book on some level? And why did you feel that having another finance book out there was important and that it came from you? What I found is being in this space for 11 years and we're closing in on episode 1300 of Stacking Benjamins that I, uh, the one book I didn't see enough of was a book that ran the gamut of beginning to end financial planning, but did it with humor. And as somebody that believes that there's so many great creators out there, but we don't have enough inroads to this wonderful world of ours, 
that I wanted to create a book that was an inroad. So every chapter of the book actually ends with an interview from the podcast. We do a transcript of an interview. People listen to the audio book, they'll actually hear an interview from the podcast, somebody that's an expert in whatever area we're talking about. But but the book does have the same it does have the same humor. I, I'm laughing because I wrote a book before this. It took like 10 years. I handed it to my alpha readers, the people I trust, and they're like, this sucks. It was horrible. <laughs> how did it that, was just, sorry, just because of the show that we're, we're on right now. How did that feel? It actually, you know what's funny? It, or did you, it, did you it, have it a sense that maybe it did already? Because it had taken so long to write, I didn't know. I honestly did not know because it had taken so long. So I knew that... Um, I knew that it was a smart book, but I also realized the second that the first people started telling me, they're like, this sounds very authoritative. It doesn't sound like you. Like, it sounds like Joe is this voice on high. You talked earlier on about Jim Cramer kind of yelling at you, you know, it kind of, yeah, it felt like that. And it didn't have the same inclusiveness that our show really tries to represent. So I realized that the tone was way off. And, and, and this is interesting. I really like, when we talked about remixing earlier, I really like taking ideas from outside the world of finance and applying them. Mm. And I think that I find my best ideas outside of finance. And I go, I wonder if we could do that in the financial arena. Like, could we, could we do that? And so I was wandering through a bookstore and I saw this book that was big in the States. I wonder if it was big in Australia. Did, did you guys have the Hardy Boys books? We've heard of them. But yes. I, I haven't personally read them, but we're aware of yeah, we're aware of them. Yeah, so these are these are books for kids. Uh, there's Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, but not only did they have all of these mysteries, the Hardy Boys had a book called the Hardy Boys Detective Manual, which was how to be a detective. <laughs> and what was awesome was was that I remember I was in fourth grade. My brother Tony was in second, and I open it up to the inside cover, and I see this thing that says, this book is written with the help of a real-life FBI agent. <laughs> and I went, Tony, this is legit. Yeah. Like, if we read this book, we're going to be detectives. Yeah, this is awesome. amazing. <laughs> So I start going through the book and, you know, every time my mom like touches a doorknob, we're over there with the tape, like getting, getting mom's fingerprints off the door. Pattering the my knob. Dad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My dad, my dad goes to work and I'm looking at the, uh, the tire tracks, you know, analyzing yeah. them because it says in the book. Yeah. And I thought, wow, if there was a campy book that was that adults carried around as lovingly about money as I carried that around in fourth grade. That's what I'm looking for. So I had this kind of high concept, but I didn't have a flow of the book. I didn't have it organized. And then, you know, scouting is really big in the United States, uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, and uh, not as big now as it used to be, sadly. In fact, a lot of the you know local community stuff because of because of social media really is being decimated, which I find sad. But I found in the attic, my old uh, Cub Scout Wolf Guide. It's this badge that people get in Scouts. And it's interesting because, you know, in finance, in finance, if you want to make something fun, you gamify it. You turn it into this big game. Mm. And when it's a game, the temperature goes down and you realize that if you, quote, lose, you just learn something. It's okay. It's fine. I just, I tried it. It didn't work which I think we need to do that more with our money. We get too much pressure. We feel too much. So I realized looking at this, that the scouts back in the early 70s when I was growing up, that they were 
they were amazing at gamification. Like they're not chapters, they're achievements. And you get a badge for every achievement. And the easy achievements are at the beginning so that you build confidence. And the tough achievements are at the end. And every achievement starts off with tools you're going to need. And then it goes into succinctly telling you how to do whatever you need to do. Then at the end of the achievement, there's a bunch of checkboxes because it isn't about what you know. It's about what you actually do. So you check the boxes once you do things. And then there's a place for your mom to sign it and you get a badge, right? And so we do the same thing with Stacked. I'm going to show you because Josh and I are looking. There's there's the badge you get for this chapter and you'll see the check boxes. There's a the little credit badge there, guys, on the last that's page right. of the chapter, I'm assuming. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you get, get your credit badge from chapter five. And by the way, at the end of the book, if you do them all, there's a certificate that's signed by my mom that says she's very proud of you and you can hang it on your refrigerator and brag to all your friends about it. Very good. And that clearly plays back into the vibe of the podcast. It's like a <laughs> symbiotic circle. It's very lovely. And it is, it is why we call it your super serious guide to modern money management because our editor and the books through Penguin Random House, the, the world's biggest, uh, the world's biggest publisher, our editors, the same editor as James Clear from Atomic Habits, which yep. I'm, I'm very honored to have the same editor. But she said she wanted, she wanted to say your funny guide to modern money management. And Emily, my co-author, and I agreed that if something is going to, and, and this is, by the way, studying comedy. If something's fu- well, you know this from stand-up, dude. If something's funny, you don't call it out. You don't say uh, this is funny. No. No. I mean, I've only been doing it a few years, so I'm by no means. I'm only just one step beyond a beginner, but if you say, oh, this is a funny story or something funny happened today, you're really setting a high bar for yourself because people are like, okay, bring it on because <laughs> it's That's probably right. not. <laughs> <laughs> I will be the judge of that. Yeah, exactly. So I said, no, 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 no. We don't need it to say funny. We need it to say super serious, Yeah, which is us saying this might be not what you think it is. And if you haven't so. seen the cover, guys, it's – a bright yellow book. It's got kind of cartoonish like scripting on the front, but super serious is in italics and the rest of the subject is. is not. So, I mean, it's genius, really. So, just on that, before we get to our last listener inbox question, why is, and you've probably explained a little bit because of the interactive elements of the paperback, why is there no audio book yet that's available? Because I've been trying to buy that for a month. It might not oh. be. It might not be an audible in Australia potentially. Wow, I got to ask Nina about that because uh, yeah, the audio book, especially people listen to podcasts, are going to like more. I always found it weird when a podcaster or someone that's famous for making audio doesn't have the audio book. No, that is super strange. In fact, our audio book in the United States is outselling the is outselling the book. I would imagine it would be given your history and the audio medium. Maybe it's just not available in this territory through Audible. Wow, that, that yeah, I got to ask about that. That I'm, I'm glad. Or, you my, that or I'm overestimating my audible searching ability. <laughs> Maybe I'm just hopeless. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you if you can get the audiobook, what I like, you know, my mom plays a part in here, and the woman who plays my mom on the show, you actually hear her voice here. Your Emily set up every achievement. I narrate the book, but at the end of every chapter, instead of the transcription of these interviews, we actually play the actual interview from the show. So you actually hear parts of the podcast throughout the book, which is uh, which is really fun. That sounds awesome, and I'm super keen. I'll track down a version. I promise, Joe. Man, I <laughs> man, I hope so. I am so glad you told me that. 
So this came to me, but it's actually a question I had a version of on my sheet, but it's come to me a few times when I put the word out to a few of my you know, inner circle people with this new show, what would you want to hear from a guy that's I think it's hilarious, but also talks about money. So why do creative people avoid money conversations either with themselves or with people around them? Oh, I love this topic. In fact, you know what's funny? We were talking about this topic. My writer, Paulette Perhatch, and I were having this discussion about an hour ago, just before you and I spoke. It is because, and I only know this because before Stacking Benjamins for a little while, I wrote for, and actually in the early years of Stacking Benjamins, I wrote for a woman whose community was all artistic people. And the big thing that artistic people, the disconnect they have is that they think art has nothing to do with money. Oh, they think artistry is anathema to money, that they're, Absolutely. Like they're nothing to do with each other. <laughs> yes, which is absolutely horrible because you think about it, People in the arts are likely to earn less money. They are likely to have uneven paychecks. And because of that, where they're not sure where that consistent stream of income comes from, they need to pay attention more. Like it, it always <laughs> frustrates me when people with very little money say, well, no, I don't think about financial planning because I don't have any money. Well, maybe if you thought about financial planning, you'd have some money. Just some. Uh, because- yeah. <laughs> just- <laughs> Does that because- be a lot? Not a huge chunk, just some. <laughs> The less that you have, the less that you have, I think, the more you have to pay attention to some of the granular stuff that none of us like to pay attention to because it's not about money. It's about value and it's about more life. Like if you spend your time thinking about what investment at Vanguard you're choosing, all right, I'll admit that's pretty boring. But if you think about the fact that I want to spend more time working on my art and less time working these horrible jobs because I can't afford to live – then then I think we have some really good conversations about money. Couldn't agree more. And it's kind of my sentiment because I know at different points in my life, I thought that the idea of selling out, particularly because I started out in the music world that was always on the edge of progressive rock, which is a super, no genre of music loves themselves more than progressive rock. It's isolated. We're intellectual and we're creative and nothing's as great. But also I was a huge fan of, the post-hardcore bands and also which verged into punk rock. So the idea of selling out was always firmly in my head. If you care about money or talk about it or push the venue for to pay you after the gig, even though they said that they would and you pulled the crowd that you needed to, all those things felt unnatural and almost anti-artistic. And that was more programming than reality. It is. It's sad because I'll tell you over the just over a decade that I've been in this community on this side of the world – Whenever I hear this great voice, and they usually are great voices who say, I'm not going to monetize this because it dirties the water. The bad news is, Josh, I know they're not going to be around very long. And the reason is if you're making zero dollars on this and it is purely just an art and there's no money coming in, Mm. real life is going to come about. And it always does. So these, these poor people that would be these wonderful lights for so many people, they flame out way too soon because of this idea that, no, 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 I'm not going to dirty it by making money. I think you need to have money coming in so that during those crappy days when you don't want to do it <laughs> and you're like, oh, <laughs> why did I decide to do Stacky Benjamins three damn days a week? Like, what the hell was I thinking? Like, why couldn't I do it once a month? Yeah. <laughs> um, then you go, oh, no, no, no. I have these contracts with advertisers and I have to do it. 
that that, pull, that pulls you through those days. And you know what I find? I find on those days, that's when I have to get really creative because I'm fighting my own ability to make stuff that I want to listen to. Mm. And I find that sometimes when I feel like the tank is completely empty, that's when some of my biggest aha moments happen. Excellent. Well, Joe, thank you so much. Where can people find you on the internet? Where can they find the show? Which highly recommended. It's hilarious. So the writing is so good and you guys have such a great rapport. And I don't think I mentioned that you are someone that I would say, and I pride myself on the same ability, but on a much smaller scale of being a great interviewer and co-host, but also an amazing guest. And you seem to tread that line and morph into those different avenues of audio in a way that I haven't heard a lot of people. Because you are very skilled at co-hosting your show, which is a multi-person, multi-sound clip kind of extravaganza where you've got to give space to everyone to speak. But you're also, as I found out today, and I have heard you in the past, an incredible guest. So I just want to share that with you. Well, thank you, man. Thank you. That's that's. Uh, people can't see me, but I'm turning red. But that's which that's really, uh, nice. which really sets off against the blue Mickey Mouse shirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I do pride myself on my work. I, I want to like you do. And I know you work very hard on this, Josh, to make a quality product. And it always makes you feel good when somebody recognizes that you, that you bring something to the table. And that's, that is truly, you know, we talked about being paid. That's a, that's, that's just fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, you can find us every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at, we call it the greatest money show on earth because it's a circus. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> don't, don't, don't expect hardcore personal finance people. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, that's the Stacking Benjamin Show. And then, of course, uh, the book Stacked, wherever you buy your books. Awesome. And I'll put in the show notes for everyone that's listening when I find, particularly if you're from Australia, I'll find where you can get the audio book reliably and I'll chuck that in there. So, yeah, you don't and have if to go. Not, <laughs> and if not, people, I'll make some heads roll. I will make some heads roll at Penguin. Excellent. Well, as long as they don't look like a small mouse like the one on your shirt, I'm happy with that. <laughs> It'll be more like a bird. Righto, mate. Well, thank you so much, Joe. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, pleasure's mine. Thank you so much.